A race between vaccinations and the variants. The lead starts right now. President Biden moments ago pushing for more Americans to get their shot. But will it work as the Delta variant rips through unvaccinated communities? And then double trouble in Florida, the urgent search in Surfside as the death toll grows and a tropical storm gets closer to making landfall. Plus, a possible death sentence for a man who helped the U.S. military. How an incident from when he was nine could land him back in Afghanistan, where the Taliban awaits. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown, in for Jake Tapper. And we start with the politics lead and President Biden's new plan to get more people vaccinated. He spoke just moments ago at the White House and unveiled a new approach, making COVID vaccines more accessible and explaining why the vaccine is so important. And here's why his focus may need to change. COVID cases are rising on average three times higher in states with lower vaccination rates. You see the map on your screen. And Biden's new plan comes after the U.S. fell short of his July 4th goal to have 70 percent of adults with at least one shot. And as the aggressive Delta variant spreads, Biden today warned people should think twice about not getting vaccinated. CNN's Caitlin Collins starts us off from the White House. President Biden walking a fine line when it comes to coronavirus. We're closer than ever to declaring our independence from this deadly virus. New cases and deaths are down dramatically nationwide as more Americans have been vaccinated, but some places are seeing an uptick as the highly contagious Delta variant spreads. Right now, as I speak to you, millions of Americans are still unvaccinated and unprotected. This is an even bigger concern because of the Delta variant. After being briefed by top health aides today, Biden renewed his vaccine push while acknowledging the challenges still ahead. Study after study after study has shown that since early May, virtually every COVID-19 hospitalization and death in the United States has been among the unvaccinated. Sources say Biden has privately questioned advisors about the broader impact of the Delta variant as officials continue to insist that those who are vaccinated are safe, but those who aren't are at risk. God bless you all and please, please get vaccinated makes a big difference. Top doctors are pointing to states with low vaccination rates like Mississippi, Alabama and Arkansas as places where outbreaks are more likely. There are some states where the level of vaccination of the individuals is 35 percent or less. Under those circumstances, you might expect to see spikes in certain regions. Over the weekend, Biden hosted a thousand guests on the South Lawn for the largest event of his presidency. Just think back to where this nation was a year ago. Think back to where you were a year ago. Don't get me wrong. COVID-19 has not been vanquished. But after the nation missed his July 4th deadline to partially vaccinate 70 percent of adults, Press Secretary Jen Psaki confirming he isn't expected to set another goal for now. I don't expect a new goal to be set today. What I will tell you is that our work is going to continue person by person, community by community. 
Well, and a lot of that work, Pam, that you heard the president talk about today are steps that the White House is already taking to push vaccinations. They just say that they are going to keep those steps up. And the president did say he believes that the U.S. will reach 160 million Americans fully vaccinated by the end of the week. Right now, we're about 157 million, so getting a little bit closer. But of course, with the rate of vaccinations right now and just how much lower they are than they were earlier this year, every little million counts, according to this White House. Exactly. And it sounds like he is setting a goal for the end of the week. All right, Caitlin, stay with me. I want to bring in the panel now. Uh, we have Dr. Jaw with us and Jackie Kucinich. So let's kick it off with you, Dr. Jaw. You heard the president speak about vaccine access, working more with the private sector, expanding mobile clinics. Do you think it's enough? Yes, Pam, thanks for having me back. I think it'll help a lot. I think there are still a lot of Americans who are perfectly willing to get vaccinated, maybe not eager. And if we can make it much easier for them in the doctor's office and pharmacies, local community sites, I think it'll make it easier. And I think we'll get a lot more people vaccinated enough to get us where we want. Maybe not, but it's going to make a big difference. Just really quickly follow up on that. Why wasn't it done more before? I mean, if, it, if this is going to really help the effort to get people vaccinated, why now? Yeah, I think the first set of efforts were on the mass vaccinations. We had so many Americans who were eager, who wanted, who were waiting up in line, long lines. And so getting a lot of those people vaccinated first was the first priority. I think that makes sense. Uh, now targeting our efforts towards people who are, let's say, a bit more on the fence, uh, maybe willing, that's going to be the next game of this. And, and that's where I think the local efforts are going to help a lot. So, Jackie, COVID will be a defining issue for Biden and his administration. What is at stake politically for him here? I mean, I think it's, it's, it's everything, right? We already saw what happened when a president, there, were probably, there was a multitude of reasons why people decided not to uh, reelect former President Trump. But the handling of the pandemic was chief among them. And so I think that right now he has very high marks. Um, on, on his handling of the pandemic, I think it's something like 60-something percent um, in, in, a, in a recent poll. But when people are getting back to their lives, people are getting back to the, you know, their day-to-day -day normalcy, that's a huge win for President Biden. And any slippage in that, you, you can just see what would happen. You can, people will be unhappy. The economy would sink. If the economy is doing well, if people are doing well, Biden is in a much better position. Um, both Biden and the Democratic Party are in a better position going forward. And when you look at the polls and the breakdown of who's getting vaccinated and who's not, yeah. it, it, there's, it really stands out along party lines. There's this new Washington Post ABC poll. 93% say they got a vaccine or plan to get one. 6% said they will not get a vaccine. Those are Democrats. Um, but look at the Republicans. Only 49% say they got a vaccine or plan to get one. And 47% say they will not get one. So, Caitlin, it's one thing to say we're going to offer more vaccines in these communities with mobile clinics and make sure doctors have them. But what is Biden's plan to combat this kind of sentiment? Well, the White House has tried to appeal to that crowd. They know directly appealing to them likely isn't going to work. These aren't people who voted for President Biden. We've seen how so much of this pandemic has become politicized. So they've often pointed back to local leaders and talking about that. But I think also it's, it's just outreach from different other members looking at people like uh, former Senate Majority Leader, now Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell pushing vaccinations often when he's back home in Kentucky or what the former CDC director, Dr. Tom Friedman, said yesterday, reminding people that these are vaccines that got started under the Trump administration. They were rolled out by the Biden administration.
administration, some of them approved under Biden, but they are trying to say that this isn't a partisan issue. This isn't political. And so conservatives who are hesitant to get it because it's now a Democratic president, they're saying that shouldn't be something that you're considering. But I think this is so much bigger than just what the administration is doing. And the chief of staff, Ron Klain, kind of revealed this when he did an interview uh, with The New York Times on a podcast with Kara Swisher saying that he confronted Mark Zuckerberg directly over this because a lot of times when they talk to people about vaccine misinformation and they ask where they get it, he said that they often say Facebook. And so he brought this up with Mark Zuckerberg. It just gives you a sense of really how many different avenues that the White House is trying to combat when it comes to people who have not yet gotten the vaccine. Right. You have all of this misinformation spreading out there. And also, Jackie, just a distrust overall in government, right? It makes you wonder, do you think more Republicans might be inclined to get vaccinated if the Biden administration weren't so vocal about being hands-on? You know, I haven't seen any data on that, but what I do know is it's one of the reasons that you see the White House focusing more on people that are closer to folks who don't want to get vaccinated, doctors, uh, local people that they trust going and saying, get vaccinated. That's why that emphasis is there, because the White House has been very open about the fact that not everyone's going to listen to them. And in fact, people might not want to listen to them and all do the opposite, which is why it's so important that the, the people who are closest to folks who don't want to get vaccinated, um, give them the information, the correct information that they need to make that decision. And Dr. John, I want to bring you back in. As Biden aims to get more shots in arms, the Israeli government is sharing this preliminary data that the Pfizer vaccine was slightly less effective against the dangerous Delta variant after Pfizer's efficacy against severe illness dropped from 97 to just uh, to, to 93 percent in just a week. So just help us understand what is the takeaway for you from these numbers? Yeah, so I'm looking at a lot of data now coming out about these vaccines and the Delta variant from the UK, from Canada, uh, from Israel. And if you synthesize all the data, if you don't cherry pick, but if you look at all of it, what you see is a pretty clear message that the vaccines are holding up very, very well against the Delta variant. We're going to see the occasional study that finds it to be much higher than expected or lower than expected. And I think of that as like we've got to look at the whole big picture. And so far, all the data says we've got these vaccines are doing really well against the Delta variant. All right. Caitlin, I just aside from COVID really quick, Biden is also looking for a breakthrough on a budget reconciliation deal that includes some of his more progressive infrastructure goals by August. Is that realistic? I think it depends on what Democrats on Capitol Hill do and whether or not they can come to an agreement. We know Democratic leaders want the ball to be rolling by the time members get back from recess, but they still have not agreed on things like what the top line numbers should look like. We've seen massive disagreement on that from more moderate Democrats uh, among their more liberal counterparts, their more progressive counterparts. And so that's going to be a big thing, whether or not they can thread that needle on whether or not they actually get the timeline that they're hoping to get right now. But we should note President Biden will be on the road talking about infrastructure, talking about his domestic agenda on the road in Illinois tomorrow. Okay, Caitlin Collins, Dr. Ashish Jha, Jackie Kucinich, thank you all so much. Thank you. A major storm is moving in and the search operation in Surfside, Florida is already being affected. I'm gonna talk to Florida's Lieutenant Governor up next. Plus, could an attack like this happen again? Why some Capitol Police officers worry not as not enough has been done to stop another Capitol attack. Internationally today, Miami-Dade County's mayor said four more bodies were found in the rubble from the Champlain Tower South Condo collapse in Surfside, Florida, bringing the death toll to 32, with 113 people reportedly still missing. 
Now, as CNN's Leila Santiago reports, the search and rescue mission is growing even more urgent with much of the state under a hurricane watch. If wind gusts hit 45 miles per hour, search teams will get called off. Today, the search and rescue effort growing more urgent as Tropical Storm Elsa looms closer to Florida. The outer bands of wind and rain already being felt in Surfside. The wind is hampering the uh, large cranes moving very heavy debris. That's a challenge that they're attempting to work around right now. The team stopping overnight just once due to lightning. We do continue to expect occasional gusts and strong showers today. And we're closely monitoring the weather, and we now have our weather service embedded within our search and rescue teams. Rescue teams now have 100% access to the building rubble and a third of the site where they couldn't safely explore prior to Sunday's demolition, expediting the discovery of victims, but no sign of life just yet. Unfortunately, we're not seeing anything positive uh, that continues in that sense, you know, the, the key things we're looking for uh, all throughout in regards to voice space, livable spaces, you know, we're not coming across that. So we're, you know, actively searching as aggressive as we can. Four more bodies discovered overnight, bringing the death toll to 32, while 113 are still unaccounted for, according to Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava. Every single life that has been lost is a beloved family friend, a best friend, someone's child or parent or niece or cousin or grandparent and we know that waiting for news is unbearable. While the search and rescue effort is still the main focus in Surfside, numerous investigations are happening simultaneously and new federal partners are arriving in the community to assist in the investigation. The National Institute for Standards and Technology is leading the federal investigation and they have been able to tag all of the evidence that has been already gathered and they are embedded and working with our police department to tag everything that is coming through the pile. The whole world wants to know what happened here. Is she gonna ask me that or am I just going? And Pamela, I can, I can tell you that uh, they still have a, quite a bit when it comes to the investigation. Police have been speaking to people, uh, to survivors as well as family members. And, and of those who remain unaccounted for, the mayor today of Miami-Dade said that 70 of them are confirmed to be in the building, but also clarifying uh, that police are trying to check within their own systems uh, to see if other reports that they have received are confirmed actual people who were in the building at the time of the collapse. Okay, thanks so much, Layla. And this search and surfside is happening just outside the direct path of Tropical Storm Elsa, which is just on the cusp of a Category 1 hurricane. Let's go to CNN's meteorologist Tom Sater in the Severe Weather Center. So, Tom, Surfside isn't expected to get the worst of this tropical storm, but this is still a powerful system. Oh, exactly. And it will become even a little bit stronger. But if we go back to the beginning, when this was first named last Thursday, the track was released by the National Hurricane Center. And at that time, the cone of uncertainty did include Surfside. So that was always a general concern from the beginning. They're not included in any of the watches, the warnings. Now, this is a hurricane warning. First one we've had since 2018 when Hurricane Michael moved in. But we have other concerns. And this is where we started talking about those outer bands, the feeder bands. As you see the circulation well off to the out areas to the west, 
from around Fort Myers, these feeder bands, this energy that is picked up, creates these lines of thunderstorms. We call it training, like boxcars of a train, one thunderstorm after another, moving into the same region, possibly not only with lightning and heavy rain, but spin-ups of tornadoes and strong winds. Now, right now, a wind in Miami is only 13 miles an hour. Closer inspection, and this was the concern. See this band that was moving in north of Miami? Let's even get a little bit closer. I think the worst is over for the crews on the site now because as these bands move in, they also lift northward. So there is a good dry slot to the south of this. Now, that doesn't mean we may not see another one spin up, and they're still included in the tornado watch in red, and that goes until 11 p.m. But most of the activity we're going to be watching now for Surfside is well to the south, moving just to the east of Key West. So if that picks up and moves into the region, there is a possibility to get more. But the forecast models, really, Pamela, keep most of the activity now north of them, and again, often areas to the west where we're closer to the core of the system. But even in toward tonight, they may get a shower. But as I mentioned yesterday, this is nothing worse than those crews have been dealing with for the last 10 plus days. Mm. Speaks volumes about their determination and integrity. So again, they are just, looking good now. They are truly an inspiration to all of us. Meteorologist mm-hmm. Tom Sater, thank you so much. Now let's bring in Florida's Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez. Thank you so much for joining us. So we just heard the forecast there. Tropical storm Elsa is expected to make landfall on the West Coast tomorrow morning. Um, but across the state, you're seeing a lot of wind and rain. What is your biggest concern for Surfside? Well, currently, as you know, the governor has declared, um, obviously, a state of emergency. He is currently in the state's EOC. We're at a level one. We've activated 24-7 operations. We are obviously expecting it to strengthen. It will likely uh, approach hurricane category one before it makes landfall. We are looking at the area north of Tampa, north of Hillsborough County. And so, obviously, for us, the concern is the saturation that has occurred in that particular area. We've seen a 300% increase in what would be the use usual amount of rainfall in the last 14 days in that area. So obviously flooding, storm surge, all the things that come with a strong tropical storm and obviously a hurricane are going to continue to to concern us. And that's why we're asking Floridians to please heed their local emergency managers warnings. If your area is under uh, evacuation right now, there's only a voluntary evacuation for a handful of counties, but that could change as we see the track change and as we see the situation evolve. So there's this video from the collapse site yesterday where you can see search teams moving through the rubble under that heavy wind and rain. Do you think it's time for the search to be paused until the storm moves away? Well, that's obviously something that our fire chief has been looking at very carefully, the safety and well-being of our heroes, really our first responders that have been on the pile since day one has been uh, a priority, not only for him, but for us as well. But they feel confident that they'll be able to continue. And I can assure you that if you ask any one of those men or women on that pile that are searching right now for victims, um, they'll tell you that they want to continue. So we'll, of course, make decisions that are in the best interest of our first responders. Uh, but right now, it seems like they're going to continue and, and they're safe to be able to do so. Yeah, they have been tireless since uh, the very beginning of this. So the Miami-Dade mayor said teams have now searched every section of the debris field. In your view, how much longer is the search going to continue or should it continue? Well, I believe that we're going to continue until we're able to identify um, either survivors and uh, through what we hope would be a miracle or if we are able to uncover, obviously, every single 
individual that's unaccounted for. Um, that information, as you mentioned at the outset, is fluid. We understand that there are people that we are still trying to get information as it relates to missing persons. Our police detectives are working diligently around the clock to be able to ensure and identify all that information. But we really uh, obviously owe it to the families to be able to uncover uh, if their loved one is indeed in that pile. We want to make sure that we identify each and every um, individual. It's been a, just a tragic circumstance all around. And so for us, it's an important priority to make sure we get those families' answers. There is a federal investigation underway looking into how the building uh, collapsed. Today, the mayor said more teams have arrived to assess the situation. What can you tell us about that? We've had investigations going on since day one. As you can imagine, people want answers, and, and so do we. So we've had engineers, uh, structural engineers. We've had seawall engineers, uh, all of the experts since day one. We have the National Institute for Standards and Technology that's been embedded as well, which is a federal uh, organization that is dedicated to building failures. They were on site and obviously instrumental through 9-11. Uh, we also have the state attorney that will be uh, presenting to the grand jury to see if they will take on that as an investigation. Uh, but at the end of the day, we want to get to the bottom of it. We want it to be a thorough analysis of what occurred, how it was, uh, how it happened. We want to make sure that if there are steps that need to be taken at the local level or the state level, that those are done expeditiously. But understanding that we are blessed here in Florida with miles and miles of coastline, a lot of buildings along our beaches. And so we want to make sure we're, we're proceeding methodically uh, and also recognizing that there are probably a number of issues that we're going to have to contend with, both legal um, and, and obviously through the investigation. All right, Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Brand new video just in from the insurrection as we learn officers worry not enough has been done to keep them safe. New scene and reporting up next. Just into CNN, brand new video of the insurrection released moments ago by the FBI showing an officer trying to get away from pro-Trump rioters after being attacked. Federal investigators are looking for the people in this video. The video release comes exactly six months after the Capitol attack. An attack dozens of officers, lawmakers and aides tell CNN could happen again because not enough has been done to fix the failures that allowed the insurrection to happen. CNN's Whitney Wild reports. Six months after dramatic breakdowns by Capitol Police during the insurrection, officials say the agency is changing. They purchased more equipment, offered new training, and now share intelligence with officers, something glaringly absent before rioters attacked the Capitol. But officers tell CNN they're worried the changes amount to marginal differences and fear they're no better prepared today than they were in early January. Since the insurrection, at least 75 officers have resigned. Providing security is done by people. Those officers have to be rested, trained, sharp, with good information, and well-led. Uh, when morale is bad, that makes it more difficult. Terry Gaynor is a CNN contributor and the former chief of Capitol Police, as well as a former Senate sergeant-at-arms. He worked on the first review of Capitol security that generated more than 100 recommendations from hiring hundreds more officers to ramping up intelligence operations. We thought some of the 
recommendations could take uh, upwards of a year or two. Physical security around Capitol Hill is slimming. The National Guard, once a large presence, is gone. The outer perimeter fence taken down, and in coming days, the inner perimeter fence will likely be folded up too, according to reports. Long-term fixes will ultimately require Congress to pay for them. This is a department that we all know needs to change fundamentally uh, from in every way, from the way that they understand and disseminate intelligence to the way they equip and train their officers to the people they're hiring, bringing on more officers. Uh, and we still don't seem to be any closer to doing that because it's an uncomfortable political reality for some folks on the Hill. In theory, come August, Capitol Police officers should get a little bit of a break because Congress takes a break. However, there are still these conspiracy theories swirling out there that President Trump is somehow going to come back to the White House. There are also federal officials who are warning of a ramped up potential for summer violence. So the potential that they get this break, Pamela, uh, seems to be slim. Uh, Capitol Police officers are trying to figure out what the plan is. So they've asked security officials at Capitol Police, what are we going to do about this potential August threat? What they heard back from security officials according to one person who was in this meeting, was that the situation was being monitored, but there were no definitive plans yet. To yeah. some Capitol Police officers who heard that, they are fearful that that is just more of the same. Yeah, absolutely. I interviewed the Senate Sergeant at Arms, Karen Gibson, who said she recognized that there was a morale problem and, and asked for the rank and file to hold on, that there will be new leadership in at the Capitol uh, Police soon, likely in August. So we'll see how this plays out. Excellent reporting. CNN's counterterrorism analyst Phil Mudd, who worked at the FBI and CIA, joins me now. Great to see you, Phil. So I want to start with these 11 new videos the FBI just released of the Capitol attack. The FBI says there are still 300 unidentified people out there who committed acts of violence. Does that number surprise you? It doesn't for a simple reason, and that is multiplication tables. If you go back to the, to the January insurrection and you look at the hundreds of people who have been uh, charged or arrested. Multiply those by, you have to look at all their cell phones, all their laptops. You have to interview them, interview their friends, people from the groups they're uh, coordinated with. That's a lot of work. Then you fast forward six months and say, now there's, let's say, four, last I checked, 400 plus cases that involve prosecutors and investigators. Now add 300 more to that caseload. This has got to be one of the, maybe the biggest FBI investigation ever. And if you add in cell phones, laptops and interviews, man, that is a lot of work. We're just watching this video now, the new video coming in on the six month anniversary of the insurrection. Um, these rioters just attacking law enforcement. How much does releasing these videos help? I think it helps at the margin margins. Look, I think I'm still concerned mostly for the ideological reason people in these movements have validation from political leadership, including in the Congress, that says don't trust government. Government is deep state. Government lies to you about vaccinations. Government lies to you about elections. Ten years ago, these people would have been viewed as fringe. Now they're viewed as somewhere closer to mainstream. The reason that I think we've made a little bit of progress is deterrence. Anybody who's thinking of coming to the Capitol has seen or at least read about those who were arrested who said, you know, I kind of was stupid. I kind of made a mistake. I have no sympathy with those people, but at least they're sending the right message. They did something stupid. They're going to jail. So let's go back to Whitney's reporting about Capitol Police saying failures haven't been fixed six months later after that insurrection. What is your reaction? 
not even close to fix. I mean, excuse me, but we're talking about simply what's happening with the Capitol Police. For example, do they have the right equipment? Let me ask some bigger questions. One of the biggest questions was, what was political interference on that day? How did the Department of Defense interfere on the deployment of the National Guard? How many training exercises have we had between the Capitol Police and the Pentagon? Because the Capitol Police leadership is still in flux. One final huge question that we cannot resolve, and that is, how comfortable is a Congress in saying we want to spy on these people? You good with that, Pamela? No, I'm not sure. All right, Phil Mudd, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. And coming up, a look at the powerful unelected influencers who are in the ear of our presidents. Stay with us. Turning to our politics lead now, President Biden spent part of his holiday weekend golfing with longtime friend and advisor, former Senator Ted Kaufman, who served as Biden's chief of staff for nearly 20 years before taking his Senate seat when Biden became vice president. Our next guest is looking very closely at these presidential pals who have had a ton of influence in the Oval Office over the years. Gary Ginsburg is the author of First Friends, the powerful, unsung, and unelected people who shaped our presidents, and he joins me now. Great to have you on the show, Gary. So you worked on presidential campaigns uh, in the Clinton administration, and one of the catalysts for writing this book was when you learned Al Gore didn't have friends? What happened? Well, I wouldn't say Al Gore doesn't have any friends. I, okay. What happened was I was vetting him for the vice presidency, and I went to see a, a wise old hand in Washington who asked me a series of questions before we went for the final interview. And he said that I don't really care about his views on the MX missile or about noxious greenhouse gases. I care about whether he has close friends, because if you don't have close friends, you can't be an effective president. So we went to the interview. He asked Gore you know, to kind of list his friends outside of a couple of members of Congress or his or, or his brother-in-law. And the senator then just kind of stumbled. And we came out of the interview. Harry was just really concerned that somebody who couldn't kind of list a series of close friends might be more challenged as president, having watched Johnson, who he thought was basically friendless, struggle in his final years as president. Hmm. So what with them? So you say friends can speak more bluntly than any aide could, and perhaps that is most evident in President Clinton's friendship with Vernon Jordan. You say Clinton wouldn't be president if it weren't for Jordan. Why is that? Well, I, I, I say that in part because of what happened right after Bill Clinton lost his reelection for governor of Arkansas in 1980. He was distraught. He was lost, and he started to seriously entertain the idea of working outside of politics, taking jobs in the private sector or leaving Arkansas altogether. Vernon Jordan calls actually Hillary and says, I'm coming down, make me some grits, and I got to do a little talking to Bill. He flies down a couple weeks later and over a two and a half hour, really hard, difficult conversation, he convinces Clinton to stay in the game. And two years later, Bill Clinton is re-inaugurated as Arkansas's wow. governor in 1952. Do we know if those grits were ever made for him? They were. In fact, okay. Hillary told me that... She had to go to a, a, a store and buy instant grits, which probably didn't sound <laughs> That's like, totally uh, my, that would be my MO as well. Um, interesting little tidbits there. I also found this really fascinating. So about former President Harry Truman, you write, quote, 
Truman would become known for his endless contradictions, someone with deep-seated insecurities yet outsized ambitions, the most powerful leader in the land who never earned a college degree, a man who used racial and anti-Semitic slurs, but who recognized the state of Israel. And you credit Truman's friend, Eddie Jacobson, with Truman's stance on Israel. Tell us about that. Well, I think it's the most powerful example of how a lifelong friendship can change the course of history. Eddie and Truman ran a haberdasher together for three years in Kansas City before it failed in the early 1920s. But they still, they stayed best friends as Truman rose to become a senator, then VP, then president. And because of their then 45-year friendship, it was a relationship that was built on total trust and candor. Jacobson could march into the Oval Office one day in March of 1948 and essentially convinced the president to do what he knew was right and had to be done, even though he was essentially, there was some anti-Semitism in his family, but he knew that this was right, which was to recognize an independent Jewish state. No aide could have spoken to him that way, no cabinet secretary, only someone who had known him intimately well, had an equal relationship with him. And before that meeting, in fact, Jacob said neither asked for or wanted anything from Truman. So two months later, after Jacobson confronts Truman in the Oval Office, Truman's the first world leader to recognize the independent state of Israel 11 minutes after it's declared. Wow, fascinating. And you also have these anecdotes about JFK and Nixon, Abraham Lincoln. But when it comes to President Franklin D. Roosevelt, his influential best friend was a woman, Daisy Suckley. And you write, quote, Daisy Sookley was in reality FDR's most trusted, constant confidant, the respite for a lonely and overworked president navigating the Great Depression and World War II. It is remarkable to think in 1933, a woman who wasn't his wife would have such an impact on the president of the United States. Well, the reality is that Truman actually felt much more comfortable around women than he did around men. He had the first kind of staff secretary who was a woman, Missy Lahand. His, uh, he had the first female cabinet secretary, Frances Perkins, who was a secretary of labor. He liked being around women. He really liked being around Daisy. She was just the right chemistry for him. What I found, as you just said, so interesting about, about FDR is that even though he's fighting a war, fighting a depression, he is intensely lonely. He says to her once, I'm either exhibit A or left entirely alone. He didn't have much of a relationship with his wife, Eleanor, who was gallivanting around the world on behalf of her causes. And so Daisy was the antidote to that loneliness. She, he, she gave him this emotional ballast that sustained him during his most trying moments. And one historian said to me in the book, FDR would have been a much more unsettled and less natural president had he not had Daisy in it. It sounds like Daisy gave him that emotional fulfillment he was missing at the time. What a fascinating story. Such an interesting book. Gary Ginsburg, thank you so much. Author of First Friends, The Powerful, Unsung, and Unelected People Who Shaped Our Presidents. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, he risked his life for the U.S. Now his life is at risk. And it might be because of a piece of bread from decades ago. We're going to explain this up next. In our world lead, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan is more than 90 percent complete, according to U.S. Central Command, which means time is running out for thousands of Afghan allies who helped the U.S. military over the 20-year war. While the Biden administration considers evacuating these Afghans, many of whom are being targeted right now by the Taliban, we're learning about one man who managed to leave, establish a home in Iowa, 
and may now face deportation because of a piece of bread. CNN's Omar Jimenez has his story. You have engaged in a terrorist activity. It's a short sentence that could end up being a death sentence. How did that make you feel? It blew my mind. How can they say that? Just, 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 you should have told me that you don't deserve to live in this great country. Zalmain Yazi, or Z as he's known, worked as an Afghan interpreter for the U.S. military for roughly two years, starting in 2007, and came to the United States in 2014, making a home for himself in Iowa. I just want to be alive. But his story started much earlier, when the 33-year-old was just nine. And he says he and other kids were forced by the Taliban to get them bread. Motorcycle stopped right by our house and there was five, six of us and said, every one of you are going home and bring a piece of bread. Otherwise we will burn this house and we will do this. And I was scared. I had to. I thought I was a hero. I protected my family. And the bread was not bigger than a cell phone. Z told that story during his asylum interview with U.S. officials. And now the United States says he engaged in terrorist activity. Nyazi suspects they're referring to the bread incident. I applied for political asylum. It's my right. I want to be alive. His future in the U.S. is in question. Years after that interview, the Homeland Security Department sent him this document saying, this is not a denial of your asylum application. But your asylum application has been referred to an immigration judge for adjudication and removal proceedings. The immigration judge will evaluate your asylum claim independently and is not required to follow the U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services evaluation that Nyazi had engaged in terrorist activity. What they do is instead say, rather than decide whether or not you meet all the statutory requirements for an asylum. We're going to say that you weren't eligible to walk into the country in the first place. Back in Afghanistan, Z says the Taliban still threatens his family. They killed his uncle. I couldn't see that picture. It was always a shock for me. Now he fears he may suffer the same fate if the Biden administration deports him back to Afghanistan. By the U.S. government, I got tagged a terrorist. By the Taliban, I got tagged as a U.S. spy. Is, I'm a human too. I want to be alive. If you were sitting across from President Biden right now, what would you say to him? You're the leader and promises made, but the promises have to be kept. When we asked U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services about Nyazi's case, they told us that it's confidential and they don't discuss what's inside those applications. Moving forward, Nyazi awaits a court date with an immigration judge, but his attorney says even if they lose, they'll appeal because they believe his life is worth more than a piece of bread. What a story. Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. Live for us from Iowa. Well, police are revealing new clues in the murder of a golf pro at a country club. That story ahead. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.